Our text this morning is Psalm 85. Psalm 85. While we cannot be certain of the original setting for this psalm, it makes good sense to see the psalm as being written after and then looking back on the restoration from Babylonian exile which occurred in the 6th century B.C. So that setting is, is fairly important and it's generally agreed upon. We'll make four points. They're there in the bulletin. Remembering, pleading, listening, and expecting. So the first point from Psalm 85, verse 1, is remembering. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Again, this likely refers to the restoration to the land. What's the psalmist talking about? He's talking about the fact that Israel has been restored to the land after the exile. That event, after the exodus itself, is the the second largest event in the Old Testament. It was, as the prophets promised, a great deliverance out of the Babylonian Empire. And it was a period of, as you could imagine, renewed hope and expectation. It was an exhilarating time for the nation of Israel. Psalm 126 says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, same language as here, we were like those who dreamed. And then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. That's a song about the restoration. God had done in the restoration What the prophets, prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah, had foreseen. He had upheld his covenant and he had restored his people to the land from which they had been exiled. Because of their own wickedness. And this restoration comes, you can see this in verses 2 and 3, because God forgave their iniquity, covered their sin set aside his wrath and turned from his fierce anger. One thinks here of Daniel, who after in Babylonian exile, Daniel's an elderly man, and he has a copy of the scroll of the book of of Jeremiah's prophecy. And he's reading in Jeremiah's prophecy that the exile was to last 70 years. That God had promised an end. And that that time, Daniel figures, is now at hand. And he prays. Daniel prays. He confesses his own sins, the sins of his fathers. And he pleads with God for mercy. Isaiah 40 has much the same sentiment. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her her warfare is over. Meaning her exile is ended. That the Lord has atoned for her iniquity. That salvation, that mercy, is what the psalmist is remembering and looking back on at the beginning of this text. So the second thing here is pleading. And here the plot thickens in Psalm 85. In in verses 4 through 7 of this text, the psalmist pleads. For God to do what he just said in verses 1 through 3, God has already done. 
Restore us again, God our Savior, and put away your displeasure toward us. So, what's going on here? Literally within a breath and a half, he says God has restored us and he's praying restore us again. After the exile, when Israel returns, as time passed, it became clear that the glory they thought would attend this restoration was not materializing. But you can read Isaiah 60, Isaiah 62. They speak of the glory of Israel blazing forth like a torch to the nations. And yet Israel returns to the land and they're still under foreign domination. First, they're subject to the Persians to whom the Babylonians fell. And later they find themselves in the middle of this geopolitical battle between the remnants of Alexander the Great's empire, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. And then finally they come under Roman rule. They never have political independence or any kind of sovereignty after the exile. And the glory of the nation. The glory of the city of Jerusalem and the rebuilt temple, they never reach, they never even approach the glory of David and Solomon's time. And so here's Israel. They've been restored. The Lord restored their fortunes, forgave their sins, turned away his wrath, blessed them, brought them back to the land. And they're still oppressed. They're meeting opposition. There's frustration and failure and conflict in the land. And so as great as this restoration was, it was, and it was wonderful, it was incomplete. And the nation finds itself, you can see this in the text, at the time of the writing of the psalm under God's discipline. And so what what do they do? They plead, they plead, For God who had saved them, for God their Savior, to restore them again. And so their situation then is a kind of, it's kind of like an Old Testament version of what Christians and the church experience. We are saved. Our sins have been pardoned. And yet we find we're not yet in glory, are we? We experience defeats, sometimes serious ones, setbacks. The church, having been delivered, mightily saved, sins. Has an array of enemies, sometimes sins grievously, finds itself under chastisement. And and we find ourselves in the need of the one who has already saved us to act to restore and save us again once more. The text puts it this way. We need him to revive us again that we might rejoice. So we cry out. We cry out for God's unfailing love, the text will go on to speak of. He needs to grant us salvation having saved us. So this is kind of Israel's already and not yet. This is the tension they're in, and it mirrors the tension that Christians are in. Now, 
Both parts of this are crucial for us. Remembering and pleading. Remembering and pleading. Remembering God's acts in the past which have saved us and pleading for him to consummate his work. Laying before him whatever defeats and setbacks we encounter and asking him in turn to revive us, to show us his love afresh. This really is, it turns out, one of the fundamental dynamics of the Christian faith. We look back in order to look forward. We look back in order to look forward. We don't look back in pure nostalgia. It's precisely because God has acted mightily in Jesus Christ, mightily in in the history of Israel, in the past, that we can be confident that he's going to perfect his work. The one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. We're in the same tension that Israel's in in this text. And there are, I think, in this tension... Two errors to be avoided. The first, the first thing is overstressing the remembering. There are people who do this. We are saved. We have victory in Jesus. God has forgiven us. His wrath is removed. We have everything we need in Christ now. That distorts the Christian life. And the the word for this is triumphalism. And all that means is it's a view of life where everything is all triumph. This perception is the root of what gives us the health and wealth and prosperity gospel. It ignores the tension and the agony in this text. Israel is restored and they need to be restored. They're saved and they need to be saved. They remember and they plead. And when the stress is on the remembering without the pleading, everything gets skewed. And the other error, of course, is to overstress the pleading. There may be more people who do this. We get so wrapped up in our current state, which is real with its miseries and difficulties. We have long unanswered prayers. All of us have those. That we forget to remember and rejoice in what God has done. Right? We don't think about the created order or the exodus. When's the last time you gave God thanks for the exodus? Nobody does this. This is America. Right? We don't give thanks for the Exodus. We don't give thanks for the covenant. We don't give thanks for the Davidic kingdom. We don't give thanks for the law and the prophets. We can barely rouse ourselves to remember Jesus Christ's resurrection from the dead. It's very important that in the midst of your pleading, you remember properly what God has done, how he has acted, because that's why we know he's going to finish. When a person is always pleading, always pleading, never remembering, what happens? Surely we've all done this. We get depressed. 
and despondent and discouraged, pleading, 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 never stopping the pleading to, to turn back and remember. So, plead and remember, remember and plead. Look forward to look back. Look back to look forward. But that's not the full explanation of where we are in the Christian life. We are remembering and we are pleading. The third point is listening. You're in this time of tension, remembering and pleading. What's the most basic thing that we have to do is listen to the word of God. You can see that in Psalm 8. The psalmist says, I will listen to what the Lord God says. I will listen to what the Lord God says. And here he's not receiving He's not receiving a fresh oracle from God. God is not saying anything new from heaven to him. The content of what he says, of what we should listen to, is simply the promises that are in the law and the prophets. So you're in this tension in life. You're saved, you've been restored, but you're not yet restored. You can can feel the the agony of it, and the glory of it. And you remember, and you plead, and you remember, and you plead. But through that, you need to be listening. Listening to the word of God. And what is it that God has said here? The text tells us this in summary form. It says, he promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. That seems simple enough. And it is. God promises peace to his people. And peace here is, as we've seen, shalom. It means wholeness or well-being. It's not so much that he'll settle down and calm your emotional state, though he will do that. It's that he promises to finish the work of restoration that he's begun. And scripture is full of this promise of this coming peace, of this coming harmony. In fact, that's what Scripture is about. It's about the consummation of this very promise. So there's a kind of listening to this promise. And yet there's a warning in verse 8. Let them, his servants, not return to folly. Folly is always a present danger for all of us in the midst of this agonizing tension we're in. Israel eventually got expelled from the land. Yet the promise is sure there will be a peaceable kingdom. There will be, as verse 9 puts it, a salvation which draws near that glory may dwell in our land. Now these promises, the promise of peace, the promise of a salvation coming near, the promise of glory dwelling in the land. That's the main stuff we're listening to in the midst of our remembering and pleading. Now, that might seem strange. You might think, well, that's not what my Bible reading's focused on. But that is what the Bible's narrative conclusion is about. For when God answers our pleas, he's going to usher in the new creation. 
It'll no longer be just this land of Palestine, but the whole glorified earth. And the whole glorified earth at rest and at peace, which the meek are destined to inherit. So we have to listen to what the Lord God says. Scripture does the same thing that we mentioned earlier. It forces you to go back to go forward. And so we're listening to this word, this promise. And that means we're ever and always turned. We have our eyes and our hearts on the end. This can seem like cold comfort to suffering people. But remember the situation. Israel's in the land. They're oppressed. They are, they are afflicted. They're under foreign oppression. And the psalmist says, you have to return to the law and the prophets and the promise of this coming glory. Because that's where the God who speaks in Scripture directs us. But you'll notice this, right? If you're a Bible reader that's attentive, that often you'll read it and you'll think, well, it's hard for me to connect the dots from this to my life. That's because it's pointing, it's generally the narrative is going to the the end of all things, to the new creation. And so you have to connect yourself to Christ to get into the narrative. But that's the direction that when God speaks with his voice, there's a destination. And we must, as listeners, be turned in that destination, the direction of promised peace. This kind of listening to these grand promises is it's hard to do, but it can be stimulated by seeing that the Bible is a narrative that has a conclusion, that this is where the story's going, so this is where we should be facing. Again, if we treat the Bible simply as a collection of sort of proverbial religious instruction then we don't see it as a story that's going this way. And so a lot of us read the Bible uh, and have read it for many years. It'd be like talking to a person who's read the same novel for 50, 60, 70 years, and when you talk to them about the novel, they never talk to you about the ending. I mean, once in a while, they know it ends well. But in the Bible, the ending shapes everything. It's astonishing how we do not talk about the end. It's like reading a novel for 50 years and never seeing that the end determines the whole thing. So God is speaking. And when we start to listen, he's going to point us somewhere. And that leads to the the final point. Expectation. So we're listening We're yearning, we're suffering. And the Spirit quickens in us an expectant faith. We have one of the most beautiful pictures of what we are expecting. In verse 10, it's put very poetically. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Covenant love and truth. God's integrity and righteousness. And his peace, the promised peace, kiss. This is what happens when glory, the text says, comes to dwell in our land. You have these four attributes 
And they evoke north, south, east, west, height, depth, length, breadth, the totality of all things. We saw this back, uh, a very similar passage to this back on Psalm 36. The love of God, the fidelity, faithfulness and truth are often the same word in the Hebrew. So that the fidelity or the truthfulness of God, righteousness, God's inner justice and integrity, and his peace, his own serenity, his own tranquility. These things work together. They're in the being of God. They're like a quartet which kisses and embraces in God himself. And the result is peace on earth. Righteousness, peace on earth. The text says faithfulness springs forth from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. Heaven and earth meet in harmony. So again, there's three things then. We can add a third thing to this expectation. When we plead, when we remember, we, we, we know that God has acted. We're pleading because we want him to act now. But when he does act now, he's sweeping you up into this concern, is he not? When God does act, what's he going to do? He's going to do this. He's going to have faithfulness spring forth from the earth and righteousness look down from heaven that they might kiss, that glory might cover the earth. That's what God does when he acts. The result of God's acting is everything's reintegrated. Things visible and invisible, things in heaven, things on earth. And then in verse 12, these are words now which evoke the original creation. The Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. It's a picture of human beings flourishing optimally. Of the good God renewing the good, the good earth, the good creation. That's what God has promised to do. And so while we're remembering and pleading, these are the promises we have to heed. And these are the things that are to become our fervent hope and our expectation. I mean, why else would we remember, plead, and listen? We remember, we plead, we plead, we remember all the while listening to Scripture because we're expecting this end. Without this, the whole thing would just be a sort of moral, a morality tale that spins around and around and around. And so verse 13 teaches us that God's very appearing, God's very appearing is what will bring about this, this promised hope. Notice verse 13, righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. So you have righteousness here, ultimately the righteousness revealed in the new covenant in the gospel. But righteousness, the way the poet is using it, is like a herald. It goes out in front of the king. It prepares the way for his steps. And so the psalm ends the way we might expect it to end. It walks us right up to God's very appearing on the earth. Right to the time when the pleading ends and we're saved and fully saved. The time when the divine quartet kisses and glory dwells in the land. Now, This being the case, 
You might have guessed this, but this psalm has been, most appropriately, I think, it has been used by the church as an Advent psalm. Interesting, huh? Psalm 85. Have you ever thought of it as an Advent psalm? It's an Advent psalm because the church has heard these accents in the text that we've seen today. This is a prayer under the forms of Israel's life for the coming of Christ and the full glory of his kingdom. Israel, returned from exile, still languishing, awaits this restoration. And while she's pleading in verses 4 through 7, we can now, we can look back at verses 4 through 7, we should see that as nothing less than a prayer for the incarnation of the Son of God. It is, in the words of Isaiah 64, a prayer for God to tear the heavens and come down. That's what's being prayed for here. And when he does that, when he speaks in response to his people's pleading, he speaks his decisive word in the sun, the radiance of his glory. And so in the fullness of time in Jesus, the Lord's salvation draws near in the language of this text. God, our Savior, appears. And John says, we beheld his glory. He dwelt or he tabernacled among us. And you know what that means? That means glory has dwelt in our land. Glory has dwelt in this land. And glory shall dwell in this land. We look at Jesus Christ, we see love and faithfulness together, righteousness and peace embracing. Because in him, God and man, in one person, heaven and earth meet. That union of God and man and Jesus Christ is like a seal or a pledge from God to unite heaven and earth, to heal and to reconcile all things. This is what Israel pled for. True, they may not have known it in the original context, but the Spirit was working. And the church looks back at this text and says, this is an Advent text. This is a Christmas psalm. It's appeared what Israel's pled for here. It has appeared in history in Jesus. And yet, and yet it has still not appeared in fullness. That's why we can continue to pray this song, even though we live in the new covenant. We remember, God has shown us his favor. He's restored our fortunes through the atoning mercy of the cross, but we're still here. And we're still struggling, and we're still pilgrims, and the creation is still groaning. People still die. People get sick. The world convulses itself. We're still waiting for righteousness and peace and for this glory to appear which will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's always good to ask yourself, what are we waiting for? <laughs> because we have so many things we're waiting for. We're waiting for school to start. You know, we're waiting for this and we're waiting for that. And we've got a long list of stuff we're waiting for. We're waiting to retire. We're waiting for this. We're waiting for our finances to turn around. We're waiting for the economy to bounce back. What are you waiting for? Better yet, what would an objective third party who followed you around for a while think you're waiting for? They should think you're waiting for this. 
Don't be distracted. Yes, you have to wait for stuff. You have to wait for the check to come in the mail. But this is what we are waiting for. We're waiting for that glory. And we plead. So we plead. Do we not? We plead for forgiveness and restoration and healing. We ask God to show us his love, and he kindly does. He, he, he gives us many gifts along the way. We remember, we plead, we listen to Holy Scripture knowing God addresses us here and points us to this coming glory. He's pointing us to a time when the one who appeared in a kind of veiled and lowly glory The glory which took the form of a humble servant, humiliation. That one will appear openly. And he will give what is good that the land might flourish. So remember, plead, listen, and expect. For you're caught up in the narrative of this psalm. This Advent psalm fulfilled in Jesus. And that means you're caught up in the story now in its last chapter. That ends with righteousness and peace kissing in the harmony and the glory that will cover the land in the new creation. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.